0: Hey and welcome to the Noobs Bureau podcast, the world's number one spearfishing dedicated podcast. I'm your host, Turbo, if you don't already know, and I hope you've been getting out and getting some fish in the last fortnight. Had some great viz and shot a PB. Let's just hope. Now, it's been an absolutely hectic time for us. We're running our Kickstarter campaign, but I'll get to that a little bit later. More on today's episode. And it is awesome. We're to, we speak with John Pengelly now. For those of you who don't know John already, chances are if you're on any of the social platforms, you would have seen John either holding up a massive dogtooth tuna. I think I, I believe that was hanging from a tree, and also a massive wahoo. Now it turns out those two fish were both world records that he shot in New Caledonia on a spearfishing trip, and that he shot them within a day or two days of each other, I believe. So. Awesome story. Imagine that, heading off the new calendar spearfishing trip to shoot some pelagics and you bag two world records. Awesome. Absolutely unbelievable. We talk all about that trip. We talk all about hunting those fish. And we also talk a little bit about hunting the reef and uh, what John does when he he looks for uh, signs and and how he replicates, you know, good hunting. Uh, Let me word that a little bit better for you how he how he predicts conditions and he looks for different conditions so that he can work out if the reef's going to produce for him or not. He's a bit of a thinker, old John, so uh, hopefully you can learn something off John. And a big thank you to his partner for dobbing him in and uh, getting him on the show. We've been after him for a little while and uh, we finally got him, thanks to her. So that's awesome. All right, now the Adreno sales coming up March 17 to April 15. That's the Adreno Easter sale. It's going to be absolutely massive. Um, This year is even better because if you can't get to a store, you can use the Noob Spiro code at checkout and save yourself a further $20 off everything, every purchase over $200. And that's on top of the already discounted prices. So that's just awesome. So big thank you to the guys at Adreno for making that possible for our listeners. We love you guys. Uh, the Kickstarter campaign. Yes, that's kicking off for ninety-nine tips to get better at spearfishing. All right, now you're gonna you're gonna see a lot of this on our Facebook, and our Instagram, so you're not gonna miss it. But if you'd like to support ninety-nine tips to get better at spearfishing, the campaign's all about raising enough money so that we can send these books out to you, printed, full color, beautifully, with a hard cover. And uh, that's the result of three years interviewing the world's best Spearos. So you've probably heard a lot of these Spearos or boiled it all down into 99 tips to get better at spearfishing. And the Kickstarter campaign kicks off on the 10th. Awesome. All right. Well, that's enough from me. Let's get into today's episode with Shrek, John Pengelly and myself.
1: If you like listening to the Noob Sparrow podcast, you're probably going to enjoy listening to an audio book. And I've got an offer for you today from today's show sponsor, Audible. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash Noob and get your hands on our new audio book, 99 Tips to Get Better at Spearfishing, free. Just go to the URL audibletrial.com forward slash Noob and get your hands on our audio book for free. Listen to even more of Turbo and Myself.
0: G'day Noob Spiro listeners, today you are in for an absolute treat. We are talking to dual world record holder John Pangelli all the way from sunny Gladstone in central Queensland. Now John, amongst a being a dual world record holder for two of the world's most prestigious fish, is also a shark attack victim survivor. He survived a shark attack with a 3-metre bull shark while spearfishing on Lamont Reef as a 19-year-old. Now, that wasn't enough to stop John. He has continued in the sport. And uh, in 2014, John broke the Wahoo world record with a 137-pound or 62.6-kilogram specimen in the Austral Islands of French Polynesia. The previous world record of Bruce Galdino... Was absolutely smashed. Now, this record was only 125 pounds, so uh, John absolutely eclipsed that record. Now, that wasn't enough for John. The following day, he went out and shot himself the world record dog tooth tuna at 109 kilos or 240 pounds, beating the previous record of Cameron Kirk Connell at 91 kilos. Now, that is a pretty big wrap. Welcome to the show, John Pangeli.
2: Yeah, thanks for having us, guys. Good to be here. Did you love that I research? I can't believe... Did you love that? That was beautiful, eh?
1: <laughs> I, I can't believe you only shot two world records. <laughs> yeah. Just two. Only two. Turbo, how many records have you got, buddy? What in, mate? Uh, well, your other sport, maybe. <laughs> No, I've
0: got we well, have got that many world records. Pick a sport. All right, we don't have time. Moving on. This is about John, not me. Anyway, John, um why don't you tell us? We'll get to your records. We'll get to the shark bite. We'll get to all the amazing catches. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Where did you start your
2: spearfishing? Uh, spearfishing started, I think, about eleven years ago now. Yeah. Um, it was yeah here in Gladstone. Um, hmm. I was always always intrigued by the ocean a fair bit and. Took uh, a couple of times out with my dad and uh, some of his mates, mainly just swimming along, snorkelling beside them. But um, it was a few years in the making before I actually got the chance to go out and start diving properly in a team, which was established through meeting a good mate and best mate of mine now, Dave Jensen, at a few parties. And we eventually got in contact with each other and had a day out in the boat. And that was uh, the beginning of the end, really. So...
0: Um, Dave was Dave a Spearow or did you both sort of get into it together?
2: He was already a Spearow yeah, his um, old man has speared most of his life and Dave was was boaty for pretty much since he can walk, I think, and entered into the water with a spear gun at the age of eight.
0: Yeah, right. And uh, so what was your, what was your first sort of uh, fish species you were chasing up there in Gladstone? I've got a fair idea, but why don't you tell our listeners what you do uh, on the Southern Great Barrier Reef when you're starting?
2: Yeah, so um, when you first start out, uh, my, my very first fish I ever shot was a greasy cod. Oh, nice. It was uh, epic. Yum, <laughs> yum, Exactly. Yum. But um, yes, yeah, more starting out in the target species fish. Uh, I think the cold trout's probably the, the one that everyone's chasing, and then that one uh, actually took me a little bit to get the monkey off my back. I had a few issues with just being able to actually spot them from the surface, and then after spotting them, it come down to – Trying to approach them, read their body language, and then after I managed to be able to finally spot them and get closer to them, I had to improve my shot and actually hit them.
0: Yeah, right. So <laughs> what, what were you actually shooting? If you if you couldn't shoot trout, which are um, a very prestigious, hard to shoot fish, what were you actually shooting? What was besides cod? What was was there anything dumber than trout on the reef when you're starting out?
2: Um, yeah, I, I suppose uh, the the, gold, the golden trevally, I'd say, probably would have been the. The one that are uh, the first decent fish that uh, I'd actually got to shoot while the other guys are taking mangrove jack and trout and that I'd maybe get a bludger trevally or a golden trevally or something like that in a big schools from around. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, nice. And, uh, and that's an ex. They're exciting. <coughs> they're exciting fish to see. I think when you're starting out, when you when you first start landing, well, I remember the excitement of shooting my first trevally. I actually still like shooting
2: the odd trevally. Yeah, for sure. The um the goldens eat pretty well. Like my um. The, the first day I actually ever got out um, and actually got properly hooked on spearfishing was a day where I shot my first golden. We were, um And funny enough, the, locate, the exact mark that I dove is probably the start of a fair few spearos. I believe even, I think, Ant Judge that was on the show. It was the This spot was the introduction to some of his reef diving. And um, yeah, it probably went very similar. They're chasing Spanish mackerel and ended up with schools of uh, golden trevally vortexing you and 20-metre viz and... Yeah, that was pretty much my first actual day on the reef, and what had me hooked from the from the start.
1: I I remember when I went from like Brisbane waters up to um, up to the you know off seventeen seventy there and some of those islands, and like learning to spot trap from the surface is kind of the hardest thing because the water's often crystal clear, but it's they've got an odd movement to their body. Is that kind of how you learn to spot them?
2: Yeah, pretty much. I think it's just, one, getting their knowing the area that they usually like to, they frequently sit, and uh, two, yeah, being able to spot their movements and silhouettes, which was something that, yeah, it, that took me a while to do. Mm, mm, mm.
1: Yeah, it's funny, everyone has that boogie fish. For me, it was like Spanish mackerel. I shot about, oh, I don't know, seven or eight before I finally landed one. So how long did it take you to get a, a coral trap?
2: Yeah. Um, Oh, it probably took me half a year, about, about six months, I think. Like well, I wasn't diving every weekend when I first started out, so there was a fair bit of breaks in between. But, yeah, I definitely do remember uh, – well, it mightn't have been six months, but it was definitely six months or longer before I could actually go out with the guys and bring back a coral trout most times where everyone else was always smacking at least a couple.
0: Yeah. And, and what about um, – <clears throat> Like eleven years on, what's the fish that's challenging you the most at the moment?
2: Oh, um, I suppose that one comes down to where I'm living. I've been moving around a fair bit lately. Um, yeah. If I was going off Gladstone here tomorrow, um, I'd say it would have to be just any type of genus species, really. I've, I've shot them, and I don't, I don't exactly find them too hard to shoot now. But just finding them and researching the area. And locations where they do sit, and uh, getting a decent specimen is probably the challenge and the the passion that we all thrive for up here now.
0: But so that's your, that's your emperor species, is it? Like your
2: um, uh, red-tailed emperor and things like that. Yeah, um, it's more the like your for us anyway. The leucogenes that we're chasing are like your red emperor, your mangrove jack, your largemouth nana guy, finger mark, oh, okay. um, all those spe- green job fish, all those species. Yeah.
0: Yeah, right. Very good. Mm. Shrek smashes okay, those with cool. his bottom time. He's pretty impressive. Um, <coughs> right, <laughs> Let's move on to uh, Memorable Fish. I mean, we've, we've got a couple. I think we should probably, we'd all, I think everyone out there would love to hear this, the story about your trip um, over to French Polynesia and those two records, mate. How did that all come about?
2: Um, yeah, that, that one was a bit of a funny story, actually. Um, actually, it was just, just off the back. Of like one week post taking a, a chartered trip of guys, um, to Norfolk Island actually, and it was a it was a bit of a flop of the trip that one. with Really poor conditions and yeah. the same time of year as like some of the guys there this year have been shooting good Wahoo and etc. But yeah, it was just yeah, you get the, we all get those trips where there was nothing. No, anyway, anyway, I ended up coming back to New Zealand and I was working in uh, Ocean Hunter at the time. Mm. And um, I got actually got the invite to head over to French Polynesia and dive with uh, G um, from from my boss at the time. Actually, he was originally invited, but he couldn't make it at the time, and I um, jumped at the chance. So that was pretty much one week notice. And in that one week, I started rigging on my gear and organising flights. Found, called up a mate in New Zealand, a bloke, older bloke that I've dived with a few times, um, and. Uh, yeah we got the trip happening so um yeah from there we uh, we flew over and met up with g in in uh, tahiti itself and uh spent a night there catching up jumped on a plane the next day and uh the plane ride itself was a bit daunting at the start we actually had two failed um plane flights where i had engine problems and I had to turn around and come back excellent so so, yeah we didn't actually know if we were going to make it there it was pretty pretty nerve-wracking at the start but um yeah we ended up making it that night we got in pretty late and um couldn't actually see the ocean very well but it it looked pretty smooth and talking to the locals when we rocked up we were uh pretty ecstatic to find out all the water was water conditions were great there'd been heaps of wahoo around and glass conditions which was Actually, a uh, a pretty rare thing for the the time of year when the wahoo run. They they are usually pretty uh, volatile weather patterns, and they do get some pretty rough seas. So uh, that was that was the thing that went right from us from the start was just being lucky enough to get good weather. Apparently, um, days before there was five meter seas breaking into the lagoon. Oh wow!
0: And and that's uh, that's September, is it? Uh,
2: yeah, that's correct. Early early September, I was there, which is. It's actually late in the Wahoo season in September. They're usually, I think I must have got the tail end of it. Um, They could have disappeared for any of the days I was there. They were pretty much expecting them to disappear and leave again. Yeah,
0: right. Wow. So you threw together this trip in sort of under a week. You're late in the season for Wahoo, but you sort of jagged perfect conditions. Um, What – So what are we talking, the the following day you went out, you went chasing these fish, Um, what sort of viz and and, um, what what sort of greeted you once you got out there? Was was it early morning?
2: Yeah, so we started about 6 o'clock. We started jumping in the boats and heading out. We um, don't really dive. It's something that i found through all the tropic islands and the Pacific really is we don't really spend any time in the water in the middle of the days. Most of the fish go deep, so it's usually a morning session, break for lunch and have a siesta and then... Head back out in the afternoons. Yeah. So um yeah, started you start at six and we uh we headed out and the the vis was amazing. We had uh, the whole time we were there, the viz would have been around 70 meters. Mm-hmm.
0: 70 meters, not 70 feet, meters.
2: 70 meters. Yeah, you could wow. see the bottom crystal clear in 50. Jeez. Awesome. That's
1: incredible. So you, were you guys drifting when you come on your Wahoo, or did you have flashes in the water? What was uh? Yes. What
2: was the, what was the scenario? Yeah, so we used flashes the whole time. Um, the shark population in these places were a bit too healthy to really worry about Burley. We pretty much rocked up on the very first spot through the flasher over. Um, My mate Brandon flipped over the side before I did. I pretty much heard him laughing through his snorkel and asked him what what, what (laughs) it's like, and he just said, there's wahoo. Yeah, we ditched, ditched the guns into the water and flipped over and... Uh, yeah, there was a school of probably about fifteen wahoo moving straight in as soon as we flipped over the side.
1: Wow, yeah. that's awful. So, the, was the big the the
0: the big fella was he in that first school?
2: No, no. The the, um, the first day we, I think there was maybe five or six fish shot between us all. They were all the biggest one was uh, just over forty, and the smallest was over was twenty eight, I think. Yeah, Wow. Um, but. Uh, yeah, the very first fish that was shot was a mid-30s model, I think, and this was that was our uh, our reckoning when we first jumped in and had a look at thinking that it was 15 to 20 kilo Ahu swimming around us and uh 70-metre Viz showed us that they were actually 20 kilos larger than they looked. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, so I'd like, I, I just yeah. come out of Diving five a clean 5 to 10-metre Viz in New Zealand, so it was definitely <laughs> a, a sharp adjustment for me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And uh,
1: did on that first day in the water, did you find yourself taking long shots, John? No,
2: um, I just I, I have dove crystal clear water a few times before, so I, I definitely took a little bit of judging and gauging. But I was, I think, I landed. I think I took two wahoo on that first day, and um, yeah, there were no missed shots or loss of fish. But um, we did manage to get pretty close to them for the for the shots. At-
1: even though you you've done it before and you had some experience, do you have some tricks for you know helping to assess the kind of the distance you are from a fish?
2: Yeah, so um, the, the, I actually learned it on the, on this trip beforehand. I I wouldn't have actually been able to tell in crystal clean water the size of uh, the wahoo apart, and I, I've definitely used it a lot since. But um, the the biggest thing I learnt was uh, especially with larger wahoo is you'll always tell on their um, the size of their belly usually will give it away. Yeah, because the, they're, they're they're a pretty pencil-like fish, but when they start getting girth on them and a big belly, and then you start, like all fish, you start seeing the chiseled features of their heads and that. Um, but, yeah, definitely the belly is what gave it away. Any fish that came in, we could see when they were 30 or 40 metres out that they were going to be like 50, 50 plus or something by looking at the size of them.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) the thing the thing you shot i remember looking at a photo of it and i was just like that thing looks prehistoric it looks like a friggin dinosaur
2: what what day did you shoot that yeah so that one was on the second day it was it was the first fish of the day on the second day Uh, i suppose we needed that first day to to warm up to everything g definitely helped us out and taught us a fair bit of uh of the wahoo in that area he's super super knowledgeable um
1: So who's who's this G guy? Sorry, I just want to interrupt your story. Yeah. What's his name? No so
2: Gerard Grave. A lot of people would have heard of him, or um, some of the a lot of people would have been lucky enough to dive with him as well. He's uh, he's an insanely talented diver out of uh, French Polynesia. He's pretty much come out of school and spent his whole life moving between islands, pro fishing, spear fishing, um, just just being, spending time in the water, really, and yeah, just. Just the uh, knowledge he has anywhere on the reef and what's happening and what he thinks going to happen is is uh, second to none in French Polynesia. Yeah, wow. So yeah, anyway, So uh, the wahoo on the second day. Um, the second day we same thing. We we jumped in the water and there was a few wahoo getting around. By this stage, like I got two of to PB wahoo on the first day and. Um, we just were pretty much waiting, waiting for larger ones now, because I had heard all the stories before we went over. The guys have shot like the 45 to 50 kilo fish before, so we um, that was pretty much the goal of the trip: to try and take a 50 kilo fish. And um, I think Brandon must have shot one wahoo for the morning, possibly, and then um, uh, then a, a school came in, and there was myself, Brandon, and G floating in the water, and G actually took a dive a dive at the fish. But uh, he was a bit out of range, and on his way back up, he looked over to me and gave the five signal with his hand, saying that uh, he reckons that one was over 50 kilos. And uh, so, yeah, I waited for it to come in a little bit closer and got the quartering front on swim at it and uh, got on top of it pretty much, sunk down to its level and its turned that little bit and uh, took the shot. Uh, I was aiming for for the brain at the time. That was pretty much the shot we went for while we were there. Was we trying to go for the brain shot. That way, if you you either turn its lights out, or if you fell a bit low in the shot, you'd get a solid slip tip holding shot through the gill plates. Yep. Um, but unfortunately, this is <laughs> um, I was out of range on that shot. You can actually hear me in the in my GoPro footage of uh, exchanging a few words when I seen the shot <laughs> shot land. It actually it just clipped the bottom of the gill plate, which was. A bit too low from like from my liking because it's a good chance of ripping out once you're low on the gill plates there but um yeah the fish had sped off in typical wahoo form ripping floats and uh float lines past me and um it was it was just swimming as flat out as i could just to try and catch up to my float It from then on and um i could see the fish most of the time and all the sharks swimming in its direction yeah it's uh it wasn't until the line went slack that i started worrying about really worrying about losing the fish and then i thought i thought i had at one stage because the uh the line was slack and i started slowly taking up line and then i got firm firm solid response from it again so at that point there was a bit of excitement and uh we just just tried to swim with it playing the fish as light as possible until we could get to it and then slowly uh tickled it up and the biggest, the biggest part of landing the fish was the sharks not eating it. Really, I think there's a big part in big part in your gear rigging and your shot placement for your wahoo in these situations. But at the end of the day, if the, sh- the sharks are going to eat it or you're going to manage to land it, really. Yeah, yeah that was yeah. Uh, my experience anyway.
0: <laughs> yeah, you you um you mentioned that you got the front on quartering swim at it. Can you explain to the listeners what that means?
2: um yeah in my experience anyway i'm sure there's a lot of people out there that have um hunted wahoo a fair bit more than than myself as well and they might have um different opinions but for me um i've found for wahoo not so much swimming away from them but you want to be able to approach them um coming down on top of them as relaxed as possible not 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 being a predator or making any fast movements towards them but if they're curious on you and coming in towards you um you should be able to slowly approach them until you're in range if they're going to be a fish that's going to give you a shot but obviously this changes everywhere i haven't i haven't hunted wahoo in hawaii and from what i've heard over there it's a totally different kettle of fish again
0: okay <clears throat> all right so yeah you, you landed that fish uh what happens then? You you go straight back in. Is this you had all the official scales and everything ready to go? Because we've all seen the photos. as just a whopping wahoo hanging out of a tree on the beach, um, tied up with a bit of a bit of string, and uh, and then you send that off. All your records off. How did you go about that? Did you take your scales with you? Were you all geared up and ready to go for a world record?
2: Uh, no, not at all. Hey, I, I, I um, I actually wasn't going for world records for that trip. That trip was just uh, me. Just needing to get out of get out of everywhere and have a bit of time to myself. Everything was getting a bit too much, so I um, went on that trip. Uh, Gerard actually brought the certified scales, and he was the he was the first one that dawned dawned it on me for the um, that we need to go in straight away regarding the record because I pulled it in and it was obviously a large wahoo, but I hadn't actually thought initially um, about the record. And he goes, "This one." probably could be, could be a record. We should go on and wait straight away instead of waiting out any, 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 any longer. So we had it on and dragged it along the pier and hung it up in the, the – um, the, the first time we hung it up, actually, it, um, we used a bit of cord that must have been a little bit too light for it, and uh, it snapped and landed straight straight in one of the locals' hands. So, um, yeah, you nearly got a, a good set of chompers to the arm, but we managed to find a little bit more sturdy Ooh. rope and – recalibrated everything and went for a second time and weighed it up and yeah that's when it, uh, it all dawned it yeah it was a record yeah incredible We.
1: Wait- were you, were you stoked John that you shot a record? I mean, you said you weren't really aiming for it. You were more just trying to get away on this trip. I mean, some guys like like chasing the records thing. It's kind of their buzz and you know, they they live for that fish of a lifetime. Is that kind of the way you are because I mean, after looking at the photos, you'd assume that you chase trophies because you got two in 2 days.
2: Yeah, it's um it's a funny one really. Um I've never actually been one for records. Like we've shot between me and my dive partners, we've shot a few Aussie records off Gladstone here, and we filleted and ate them all. Really. Um, <laughs> same with um, that. Obviously, a world record's probably a fair bit more um, prestigious of uh, fish to take. And yeah, I was I was definitely ecstatic. I was, I was super excited at the time, but I, I wouldn't say I was just yeah just there to chase trophies or anything. For sure, I was actually a bit bit um confused at the end of the day i wasn't drinking at the time and usually i'd have a beer to celebrate but i ended up finding myself just pacing up and down the beach wondering what's going to happen the next day
1: and uh in french polynesia there do they have kava like a lot of the other polynesian islands i'm not sure
2: actually um where we were with we, there wasn't any kava around i think kava's a bit more fiji png Fijin, Tongan. Yeah, yeah okay i could be could be wrong though. i'm not 100 percent on that one
1: some nights when when I I spent a month in Tonga I mean I would have ditched alcohol for for a good carver night uh, anytime uh, it was good it was good fun but uh nah, cool all right so the next day you headed back out again and uh and unfortunately you 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 met a really huge dog tooth
2: yeah yeah so the the funny part of the story a bit of pre-story I should say about it is um one of my mates before I left New Zealand actually uh, told me not to come back without a 100 pound Wahoo. So, um, I actually <laughs> talked to him that night and, and, uh, he was laughing at the whole scenario of him saying that and it actually happening. And, um,
1: yeah,
2: you've had Darren Shields on the, on here. Yeah. His, his son yeah. Jackson actually messaged me that night as well and was, uh, saying, Congratulations, man. And, uh, said there must be some, some big doggies there as well. Go, go try and take a 200 pound doggie tomorrow. And um, I actually messaged him back and said, oh, there's a few spots. We might go have a look and we'll see what we can come up with. Not not thinking that um, something like that would come about, to be honest. But, yeah, so we went, we went out the next day and um, it was a bit of a quieter day and all, really. We um, jumped in the water and there wasn't much fish around. We didn't see too much wahoo. Um, I think one school of dolphin fish came in, Mahi Mahi, and we, we took um, – took one of them each for dinner. And uh, it was getting a bit closer to the middle of the day where we usually go in and have lunch. So um, we thought we'd just cruise out to a um, drop-off and have a quick look to see what was about for just a bit of a reconnaissance mission. And uh, yeah, we got dropped in the water and must've been dropped in a little bit too close. So we started swimming towards the ledge. And once we got out to the ledge, uh, pretty much instantaneously, we had a flashes down and uh, two doggies come up out of the blue and it's just look to look at the dog uh, look at the flashes and uh yeah that there was a small one which was estimated around 50 kilos and then a much bigger one
0: yeah you wouldn't shoot that would
2: you well, oh you will come back next year bigger yeah yeah babies. the 50 kilo one would have been <laughs> definitely a um would have been a memorable fish easily yeah but, um, yeah, so the yeah those two fish come up and uh, there was pretty much no pause. It was just straight into a duck dive and started swimming down the flasher. And I managed to look over just to check that my mate hadn't hadn't already dove. And he had dove at the same time as me, but he was about five meters back up behind me. <laughs> so so uh, I continued to <laughs> continued down. <laughs> I thought I had to jump on that one, so I wasn't going to pull out. And um, yeah, I just or oh, pretty much just locked on the larger fish keeping an eyesight on it and swimming and swimming until I hit the, hit the 18 meter mark. And I started getting into free fall and um, kept cruising down and he just started growing larger and larger into just a massive toad of a fish. And um, I was estimating him around probably 80 kilos um, at the time. And uh, yeah, trying to close the gap, got in closer and closer and closer. And I thought I was going to get a headshot on him. It was Pretty much a quartering away, angled down, perfect shot for a, for a brain shot. If I could have got close enough, but um, he had other ideas and started taking off a bit. I've seen his tail move once, twice, and he was just about to kick it a third time just to take off out of sight. And I managed to squeeze the trigger and get a shot in. And uh, yeah, pretty much anyone that's shot any size dog tooth knows knows what happens from there. All hell breaks loose. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I turned for the surface after that and I think it was about at 20 metres. My 30-metre float line had already surpassed me and my yeah. first two foam floats I had on uh, had ripped past me and behind that I had a rife 100-foot bungee and that had stretched out fully and just before I hit the surface, my rife three-atmosphere float took off as well. Wow. So
1: so how many floats did you have on?
2: Yeah. Uh, Two floats, it's like there, were, there was two foam floats, like your commercial yellow foam floats that were tied into one yep. and then a bungee and then a Rife 3 atmosphere. I originally had two Rife 3 atmospheres, but on the first day uh, the inflation piece out of the Rife exploded in that, on one of the Wahoo that I um, shot, so I had to get some help there and rig up a, a makeshift float.
1: All right. Sounds like it did the job though.
2: Yeah, it actually worked really well for the Wahoo. It was a nice little small pull-under float that didn't put too much pressure on them when they took off. And it's a nice stretchy bungee and a larger float at the back.
1: Yeah, right. right. And how long long did
2: this battle last? Uh, For the doggy, um, pretty much I I hit the surface. And there was maybe five minutes of the float going down to 20 metres and coming back up, down to 20 metres and coming back up. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what was going on there because I think the fish could have taken it out of sight straight away if he wanted to, but i was I was guessing maybe he's made it to the bottom and the the line must have been caught on a bit of reef or something at that stage, the actual float line and he' pulling the float and getting pulled back and forth with the with being wrapped on the bottom maybe. and then um after five minutes, the uh, float just disappeared out of sight into seventy metre is. <laughs> I've actually got footage of us uh, swimming after it and just waving goodbye to it, and I thought that was the last I'd see of it. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so it, it disappeared out of sight, and we continued to swim along for a bit longer, and eventually the float uh, come rocketing back up towards the surface at a pace that I, I thought it had ripped out at the time, so I was uh, the heart, heart sank a little bit. But um, the float, float actually stopped in Tombstone just before the surface. Which was uh, a bit exciting. Just knew it was all back on. So yeah. the next next little while after that, we were playing, playing the fish super softly. I just wasn't confident on the shot, so I just really didn't know whether um whether it was going to rip it out if I started trying to rip it to the surface or not. So I would literally would pull a few meters in, and then it would start swimming a bit more. So I'd let a few meters out as it would pull the tension out of me, and and then played it for yeah, a good five minutes before I could get it up to the near the surface, and then by the time I got it up to about 15 meters it was it was pretty much dead and floating but um I could see the slip tip was just sitting on the inside of the fish's skin by this stage did pull all the way back through so I um, Got a second shotgun and shot put a shaft straight through the the brain and rolled it over and that was the end of it
0: you um yeah, now on you When you got past the other gun you um you unloaded it reloaded it for yourself didn't you
2: yeah? Yeah, so take the rubber off <laughs> put the rubber back on
0: Just wanted to clarify, mate. I thought I might catch you out there. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: for, for anyone that doesn't uh, know the uh, rules of second shotting fish for world records you've actually if someone gives you a second shot gun to um, finish off the fish you've got to reload re reload the gun yourself otherwise it doesn't count so it's one of those things keep that in mind if you're chasing records yeah that's correct okay good
1: yeah. interesting what 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 gun were you using John um, I'm, just, I'm curious
2: yeah I was using a 1.4. King Venom aimright gun with uh four sixteens okay. and an eight mil shaft on it. Okay. Sounds like a weapon. Yeah, it was um it was really good actually. It shot, shot super accurate, super fast. Um I didn't have any problems with it. I could happily dive the to the thirty meter mark with it still wasn't too big and bulky. Um I think the only downside of it is that at four, four bands on a on a carbon gun and an eight mil shaft, you're getting a lot of recoil. Yep,
1: yep, yep. Yeah, was
0: there any any part of your gear like just because you you used a full bungee, rife three atmosphere floats? Um, uh, you used s- smaller floats to um, soften the impact of the fast swimming fish. That's another one that people new newcomers to blue water hunting should realise. Um, so you've got all this stuff to soften up the fish. Was there any part of your equipment that you would improve or you didn't like or is there something you do differently now?
2: Um, I don't know what the case is with the rye floats now, but the reason my my, uh, my inflation piece blew on the rye float was it just had zippy ties on it um, oh. where, where it went in. And I don't know if that was – I bought those floats new, but they were really old, so I don't know if that was uh, that's how it was done back in the day or not or if something had happened and someone else had done something previously. But um, I, I, after that trip, I learned to change over, and I just put stainless steel hose clamps on that section of the floats. Um, so that was definitely one, one thing that I altered in my gear. Um, yep. But other than that, um, gear, setting up for gear and how what you're going to use it for is a big part of my prep. I, I'll spend a week or two just sitting there staring at my gear and playing around <laughs> yeah. with it.
0: <clears> oh, <throat> just another quick question. So September, French Polynesia, what sort of, uh, wetsuit like, um, thickness wise do you use at that
2: time of year over there? That time of the year I was using a three mil, not a three yeah. mil more top and three mil rife bottoms, a bit of a mix and match. Um, it's for me, it was fine cause I've come out of New Zealand and, yeah. uh, the three mil was, was, was fine. It's still, it's like around the 23 degree watermark. Yeah. Um, a lot of people probably would get cold though in a three mil, especially when you're out in the out in like a k k and a half of water, just waiting for hours on end for something to come up in a burly trail. Yeah, okay, well, yeah. So um, I think your you pre one of your previous Turbo. episodes with uh, Jagger, he was saying that he uses a five mil, and I can understand someone in the tropics for sure, or people that are are uh, used to warm water would definitely floating around would get cold after a bit.
1: Turbo would have a seven mil one for sure, John.
2: Yeah, get the seven out floating around, Michelin man style. <laughs> just yeah. just
1: on my legs, just to fatten them out
2: a bit, really. And just a three mil on the top. <laughs> all right.
1: Hey 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 John, I wanted to ask, so are those videos
2: uh, videos of those catches online? No, they're not. Um I'm I'm a bit stuck with all my footage. I don't really share anything these days so i've got an instagram account that i put a few photos up every now and then but i've i've deleted facebook and uh and like all my footage i've got footage of shark attack and all sorts of stuff built up in there mate might put into a video one day but there's something that i've just always filmed just for me and mates i've never really got into making movies that much is that yeah okay is that uh, you've deleted
0: did you delete facebook because of all the fame Uh, that ensued after those world records?
2: (laughs) No, not really. I think um, for me, I just deleted Facebook because I wasted a lot of time on there really. And it was just, I found myself losing contact with people face to face a fair bit. So um, I've got kept my Instagram if people want to contact me via that. But other than that, I try to uh, avoid it all a little bit more. It is. It's a disadvantage. Uh, it is a bit of a disadvantage at times, keeping up with stuff in the spearfishing community and that for sure. But, um, yeah, for me, I, I, I'm a little bit keeping myself a bit at times.
1: We'll, we'll link your um, Insta up in the show notes, John, so people can maybe even just come and have a look. And uh, we'll, we'll put the pictures of those two fish up in the uh, show notes page as well because they're some fantastic-looking uh, fish. They're fish of a lifetime, that's for sure. And we need all the help
0: we can get on social media. We're dying.
1: <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> 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 Just hey, uh, I I wanted to I wanted to briefly shoot back to your start to the start of your spearfishing again, John, because I, I think you're quite good at explaining a few things. Um what what was the what was your biggest obstacle or, you know, the thing you struggled with the most when you were starting out, apart from um you know, latching on to and identifying species and things like that. What else did you struggle with?
2: Yeah, um, information on training and just spearfishing in general, like the, the content you guys offer. Um, all that sort of stuff was hard to come by when we first started out. Like there was pretty much your, your method of learning was, was you and your mate hanging out on a Friday night watching videos like Blue Vision and Liquid Focus from Brett Verko and all those sort of old school films. And um, yeah, we used to do a little bit of pool training, but we didn't know what we were doing really at the time. It was just doing slow fifty meter swims in the pool, having a chat at the end, doing another one. So uh, yeah, information and training options, uh, safety training, all all that sort of stuff that's readily available on YouTube these days. All that sort of stuff was very hard to come by. So um, that that was the hardest for me.
1: So you did some um, some pool training with some mates? Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. To, yep, the, I, um, to help you with to help you with your freediving?
2: Yep. Yep. So we did a bit of pool training. More at the start, it was just for spear fishing, but uh, later on, it developed into free diving. I got into competitive freediving. Oh, cool. So um, that was definitely something that all tied in with spear fishing as well.
0: Yep. Did you do that with um, Fran Rose or um, Judgy up there in Gladstone at the time?
2: Yeah, a bit of both actually. Um, I met Fran. Fran was uh, a big pivoting point in my spear fishing career for me um we i actually met her on the on a day where me and a mate he was 16 at the time i was 17 and we were out diving wrecks um diving a wreck that was in the 30 meter mark and um he had his uh he had a blackout that day we were obviously just too young and competitive and we were making 30 meters all right for a couple of seconds and being able to shoot fish but we weren't definitely weren't 30 meter divers at that stage and uh, with us both competing against each other, he ended up unfortunately having a blackout, and um, I ran, ran into Fran that afternoon, who had just moved to Gladstone, and uh, that's pretty much where the, the freediving side of it all kicked off here in Gladstone for all us boys. She uh, helped us along in leaps and bounds. Yeah, awesome. yeah and ju- like you said, Judgy as well. Judgy was um, he actually me and my best mate Dave and Judgy all shared a house on stage for a year or so. Uh, and, yeah, he was judges, actually, probably one of the main people to to thank for my mate being uh, successfully rescued from that blackout because there were a few guys in the spearfishing community. Judge, he was one of them that were starting to get a bit worried about us at, at our age, 16 and 17, and the depths we were diving. So Judge, actually took it upon himself before he even knew us that well. He'd been up and dove with Gordy a few times, which is Dave's dad. Um, they actually recorded a video of a res doing a safety briefing on blackouts and sent it up to us, and we used to watch it religiously, and I think a, a good part of watching that video was uh, having that second nature information on hand that day that he did blackout. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, good stuff. Awesome. Good stuff.
1: All Thank right, you. so, yeah, yeah, we, we, we like Wayne, and we've always had a had a had a good relationship with him. He's he's been great and in, in, in influential in in our own diving. So and a, and his son as well now. Um we, we we follow Ant as well. Um all right, so you you got involved with the free diving as well, John, what what current challenges do you face? And um and, and how are you facing them? Um oh
2: I've got to be a bit careful how I say this one, but um <laughs> I think my, my current challenge at the moment is uh, diving with my girlfriend actually. Um, (laughs) uh, she'll she'll be listening to this too um but no um,
1: here we go here here comes the political speech (laughs) yeah
2: no um pretty much for the last couple of years i've been uh moving around a fair bit so my girlfriend and i have both been to uh each dive partners because we're definitely our usual crews that we would have grown up with uh aren't in the locations that we're with which has been good it's uh we we love diving with each other she's Definitely coming along in leaps and bounds, and uh, absolute pleasure just seeing all her do everything for the first time. But uh, the hard part is I've found um, is learning to gel as a team with two different styles of diving. Um, So it's it's something that we work towards a fair bit at the moment. I'm I'm a fair bit more um, relaxed with my diving in the point where I'll go out and just let. Whatever happened, unfold in front of me and take it from there, see what the currents are doing, see what the fish are doing and decide what I'll target from there, which I think is a is a hard um, hard style to learn off for her. So we um yep. we end up in a the odd uh, argument or tassel <laughs> in the surf. Yeah. But um, no, she's uh it's it's something that's come along come along a long way.
0: So she's uh what what is she it's uh, she wants to target a particular species, does she? Like she has a fishing more that she wants to go and chase?
2: Yeah, I think, um, yeah, pretty much. It's the same as when we're, when we're all starting out. We will have our species that we want to target and our species that we want to tick off the list. And um, that's 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 the best part about diving with her and the part I love, really, is she's got so many um, goals that she wants to achieve. And if I can be there to help her do it and actually witness her doing it, it's, uh, it's a pretty enjoyable feat.
1: Yeah, wicked, wicked. Show sponsor PenetratorFins.com have got an all new series of carbon fibre blades available. If you go and check out the Pyro Camo Carbon Blades, and uh, these are an all new series from Larry. They've got improved graphics, finish and flex curve, and they've got the, the same 25 degree toe angle. For efficient surface finning, a 72 centimeter working blade. They're extremely lightweight at only 325 grams and they've got that same great wide water channeling um, that, that Larry's blades have. This just allows for a lot less fatigue, lower oxygen consumption and uh, they just have you jetting through the water. Check them out at penetratorfins.com. You can use the code NoobSpear and save yourself 20 bucks if you do decide to purchase. Is it time to top up your t-shirt drawer? Then head over to NoobSpiro.com and get your hands on our black shirt or our white shirt. Pretty simple. They're 35 bucks Australian each. Use the code free shipping until Christmas time this year and top up your t-shirt drawer with something you actually like and support the show as well while you're doing it. That's just NoobSpero.com. Thank you. All right, cool. Let's move along, John. Um, hunting tech hunting technique What's your favourite hunting technique, and how do you apply it effectively? And maybe, um, maybe you could walk us through, you know, some of the coaching you've given to your girlfriend about, you know, how how to um, how to employ some of these techniques effectively.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I suppose with the, the hunting technique, um, my style of hunting is uh, just just being super relaxed, which you've probably heard from a lot of people, but um, a, a few. Little, Few little things that i've always tried to try to take into account with my hunting is uh don't don't be an obvious predator um fish fish uh can sense if you're agitated if you're super keen on trying to trying to shoot it obviously like you see you hear people trying to shoot spanish mackerel for the first time and the spanish never lets them get close or trying to shoot wahoo for the first time um, a lot of that comes down to the fish sensing uh what you're feeling i think if you're giving off a hard vibe or if you're kicking too fast if you can just manage to slow down a little bit and um, just relax, then a lot of the time the, the fish will, will just uh, present themselves a lot more for you. Hmm. Um, that ties in with a lot of other stuff like ta- taking in your surroundings a lot more than just like search and destroy. If you can actually relax a little bit more <laughs> and watch watch what the bait fish are doing, watch what feel what the current's doing, what direction the sun's coming from, um, all that sort of stuff, you can definitely um, improve your chances a lot more. And... and um, Learning fish body language, I think, is a really big one. Like I was talking about the trout before, once if it, like all this sort of stuff really just comes with experience and time in the water. But if you can, if you can start focusing on fish body language a little bit more, watch what they're doing in the leading up of you trying to approach them instead of uh, just focusing on where you're going to try and shoot them, um, you'll, you'll definitely learn a lot more about what the fish is going to do and how to approach them, whether you need to back off and not be so aggressive or whether you need to just turn around and swim away from the fish and try and get its curiosity up. Uh, just yeah, just all sorts of stuff like that, I suppose.
0: Hey John, uh, speaking of trout, last couple of times we've been up to the reef around, say, Fitzroy, we've noticed that the bigger coral trout will just slowly but surely just out of range, start heading off in the other direction time and time again. And I've had a few divers on board that all say the same thing. Much better than me, so it's not just me, mate. What are your tips? I have, is that something that you've seen with the bigger trout? Um, it, you know, have you got any
2: advice there? Yeah, for sure. Um, in my experience, don't try and approach them from the bottom. Um, okay. your, best, your best bet is getting over top of them spotting them from the surface obviously it's not always possible if it's dirty or water but if you can if you can spot them from the from the top approach them from the top or just on a slight angle and yeah just be relaxed get into a if you can get into a free fall if it's deep enough just have your gun pointed out and slightly try and go into an aim of where you want to hit the fish and just let yourself get closer and closer and yeah yeah, like that's where the body language parts comes in if you can learn to read a fish fish's body language you're going to know that the fish is about to swim away or the fish is just going to sit there and you can swim up to it and poke it.
0: Yeah, right, okay. So free, free fall sounds like the key there. Well, I'm rarely in free fall mode, so I might just put a couple extra weights on um, and just <laughs> and just make it's a 5
1: ter- to 10 metre free idea. fall. <laughs> <It's> a terrible <laughs> idea. Yeah, so you can free fall from the surface. Look <laughs> at that old drown. <laughs> To the bottom of the bathtub.
0: <laughs> Shut up, idiot. Well, <laughs> all right, that's that's uh, really, really good advice, mate. Um, well, I like it. Have we covered hunting technique? John, is there anything else you want to add?
2: Um, I suppose the only other thing I could really say is, yeah, just try and, again, it's a thing that will come with experience and time in the water, but just try and adopt an attitude that... Going home empty-handed—it's not a problem at the end of the day. Like time in the water is time well spent, so if you can just be a bit more relaxed and not need to take anything you see, um, that's just a, a little handy hint. And trying to calm yourself down a little bit more and getting fish to come in is just not be too worried about going home empty-handed. Yeah,
1: nice. It's
0: not nice. too bad once you've had ciguatera. You don't mm-hmm. mind too much if you don't come home with fish. <laughs> <laughs> can be like Russian roulette there oh. <laughs> for a few months. So, yeah, it's so, not
1: too. Sometimes. Bad. Sometimes you're sitting on the boat on the way back in, and, and you haven't shot anything, and you look at each other and go, "Yes, I don't have to fillet fish today." Got a few beers in your hand by
2: that stage too, not having to worry about yeah. too much extra for the rest of the day. Yeah, because
1: <laughs> it's, it's, it's it's never as bad. It's never that bad though. You know, when you're starting out, you always want to go home with five fish, so you got a shop for Instagram. But really, like you know, like you say, you just have fun while you're out there. Instagram wasn't the even around thing. when you started. Don't bullshit us. I think
0: Instagram was years away.
1: I'm I'm actually just pretending like I know what Instagram is. Really, I'm that old. I don't even know. I'm like, Facebook? I know Facebook. And this is why we have 50
0: followers between us on Instagram.
1: (laughs) Yeah, go to Noob Sparrow Podcast on Instagram. You can follow Turbo. He's got the best trout pout going.
2: Check it out. Um,
1: all right, John. Next, uh, next, next section of the show. Toughest situation. What's the toughest situation you've been in in the ocean, and uh, what actions did you take? What What was the result, and what did you learn from it?
2: Yeah, this one. This one was a little bit hard for me to decide because we've, we've had a fair few in the ocean. Um, I've had like, I've had a. Well, I've talked a bit before about my mate blacking out at a young age. I had. A bull shark have a swing off my arm about 70 K offshore and Oof. another one was uh, when I was in New Zealand I had a mate that was trying to retrieve some dive gear off a cliffside fall seven meters head first into rocks below and fracture a vertebrae, oh. shatter his w- wrists and he had a, a really bad head wound. He actually landed in the water, but somehow didn't knock himself out, scuttled back up on the rocks and I found him about five minutes later losing blood pretty quick shit so they're they're probably the top three but uh i don't know which which ones do you want to hear about
1: (laughs) let's just hear about the last one first and then we'll go backwards from there what 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 was the lesson what happened to your mate so you're walking you're walking back from a spearing
2: session and he fell off a cliff oh we're actually in a boat and there's a little island um out of a place called Tairua in new zealand and um the previous jake he had a um bit of a bad luck where he was had his boat anchored there and he was diving and the boat anchor got severed um off a sharp bit on the front of the boat and the wind swept the boat away so they climbed up onto the top of this little rock to try and wave another boat down and they left their dive gear there and so the very next day we turned up to go diving and uh i said i'd uh, take him out there and we'll go for a dive and while we're there you can go up and retrieve his mask and um we, we were at we were swimming around having a look for some fish and he just said oh look i'm just going to climb up and grab grabbed my mask that I left up there yesterday. I said, no worries. And we were back in the boat. It would have been about five minutes since he'd climbed up and over the other side of this rock. And um, it was just one of those six cents type things. Something didn't quite feel right. And I told the young bloke that was with us to jump in the boat and we'll, we'll go around the other side and have a look. And um, we took, took, we were only in a little like 12-foot tinny and um, we went around the other side. and I couldn't see him anywhere in the water. Like when you scan and pick up a sparrow, you're only looking in the water. You're not looking up at the rocks and um it was a fair fair washi in there and uh the young bloke actually spotted him up on the rocks and he said oh i think that's him up there and i i looked up and just on a little ledge above the waterline, he was there curled over pretty much just being able to move his hand like making a high five like a spreaded hand of five fingers trying to wave to us look draped over a rock and just something didn't look right so um i ditched all my weight and grabbed a float and and told the young bloke to wait out there and swam on in and timed the swell to be able to launch myself up onto the rocks and yeah I found him pretty banged up he was um just losing blood from the head pretty quick and just repeating himself didn't really know what was going on and so I managed to get out of him that he'd fallen from the top at that stage and um he was he's six foot four this bloke and 104 kilos too so that was a um a challenge from there but we there was an island not far away that I managed to yell, yell the young bloke to turn around and, and fly over and uh, call for help, call for an evac or something. Yeah. And um, before he left, I swam, I jumped off the, jumped back off into the water, swam back and grabbed a a uh, life vest out of the boat, and that's where I explained to him to head over to the shore and get help. And I got back to him and he was starting to pass out and come back to at this stage, and I um, put his feet up. In, uh, up in a bit more of a vertical position and that started bringing him back around a little bit more but uh, he was on blood thinning medication that's why he was losing a lot of blood at the time as well and um yeah so we got his feet up and got his got a um life vest on him just in case because the swell was right there and uh, wasn't by the time i'd got a life vest on him and uh taking his weight he had a chest harness on i've got his chest harness off um the water police actually turned up they happened to be at the jetty of the island that was there and um they couldn't get in close enough to where we were but I, I swam out to him and explained the situation and said that um he's losing blood quick and he's on blood thinning medication i don't think we've got time to wait for an evac helicopter or anything so we made the made the call to um to try and get him off and into the boat so i swam back and made sure his life vest was on right and I ended up having to. He was still pretty dazed and repeating himself, but I managed to get him to put his feet over the edge of the ledge, and I, I just said, "Look, we're going to get you in the water, man, and over to the boat." And he just he, he just looked at me <laughs> and said, um, "Look, man, I can't. I, I don't know what's going on at the moment. You're just going to have to do everything for me. Just don't let me drown once I hit the water." And um, <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, so yeah, we severe, man. Sorry.
1: This crazy, a crazy situation.
2: Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't. So, from there, it wasn't too bad. We, um, I pretty much just timed a bit of swell and kicked him into the ocean, and um, <laughs> jumped, in, jumped, jumped in after him. And because he, because he was such a big bloke and just negatively buoyant too, like I had his weight off, but he still just sunk like a rock once he hit the water. Like I hit the water with him, but and uh, got him straight back up to the surface. Uh, he was conscious enough, like, to hold his breath for those couple of seconds, but yeah we got him to the surface and back to the police boat and then we tried to support him as much as possible and get him up into the back of the boat luckily they had a tuna door so it was wasn't too bad and from there we we raced him back to shore and there was a helicopter waiting for us and got him off to hospital
1: wow yeah right and how how is he now
2: yeah yeah no he's doing fine now he had a fairly slow recovery because he had a fractured vertebrae and shattered wrist and a few other bits bumps and pieces but, um, he, yeah.
1: Vertebrae he come, verte, vertebrae in his neck?
2: Uh, yeah, in his spine somewhere. I'm not exactly sure whereabouts, but, yeah. Poor uh,
1: bugger. How big,
0: how big was the fall? Do you know? Like metres? How many metres? Seven, seven metres. Oh, wow.
2: Yeah, so he done well. Like, he was fully weighted too. He had a big chest plate oh. on, which would have been like six six kilos of weight on his chest plus more around his waist and head first into the rocks. But how he didn't drown was amazing to me. Like, he... I don't know how he didn't knock himself out on the rocks and then bounce into the water and drown, but he managed to scramble Here's himself th- with all that damage um, back up onto the rocks for, to wait enough time for us to get there.
1: Here's a kiwi broke there, yeah. Yeah, yep, yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah
1: tough it's as nails. As tough nails. as nails. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what oh, I'm glad he's all right. I mean, what what are the takeaways from that? I mean, it sounds like everything went pretty well. And, you know, you got you got to him pretty fast after he'd had a fall. And, you know, you had some, you know, the young fellow was able to call for support and luckily the police boat was close. I mean, what else could you do in that situation? Is there anything, um, any, you know, like... Just, These things happen, I guess.
2: Yeah, just keeping a cool head's the biggest thing. I can't stress enough for people to be first aid and O2 administered train. Um, it's something I try and keep current in. It's it's helped us a fair bit over the years, but I suppose just from a fair few of our previous incidents, it was I was good, able to keep a, a little head in a situation like that and just the little things like being able to know him to elevate his feet to keep the blood going through and keeping him uh, a bit more conscious for us and... Um, having a having being cool headed enough to know that there's somewhere nearby, send someone for help. Someone can stay, and uh, the rest of the stuff is just you just get, you'll just make it up as you go. I think like the decision to get him off the rock instead of waiting for an air vac. It was just at the time we we didn't want him to lose too much more blood, so it's just the executive decision on the day. I think.
1: Yeah, nice. Um, I, I really want to hear about your your bull shark story too, John. Um, what what happened there?
2: Um, yeah, the, the bull shark story, I think it was 2009, um, me and my two mates, the main blokes I've dived with most of my life, Davey Jensen and Nat Keane, we're, um, we're out diving a little shoal off the side of Lamont Reef, and um, it was pretty early on in the morning, we just jumped in and we were drifting over the this, this shoal. And it was showing pretty promising, so fish, crystal clean water. It was like 35 metre vis, as good as it gets in the bunker group, really. Mm. And, mm. and um, yeah, I, I just dove down and shot a mangrove jack, but um, it was it's stone cold. Just my flopper happened to catch on a bit of plate coral, so it was sitting at the bottom in 20 metres. And um, I've got let my line out and got back to the surface, and my mate Natty was right beside me and uh we were face to face just talking while i was catching my breath had my had our head our heads above the water for a second and uh after that it was just uh it was like being being shoulder charged by one of the all back all black props really um all, all i felt was I just like probably my recall is probably not the best person to tell the story because there was a fair bit of shock and everything involved, but. Pretty much, I see my mate in front of me just, just get shaken a touch as it brushed him on the way past, and then something just hit me in the chest at full speed and uh, launched me up to about my waist out of the water. Wow. Uh, as I fell back into the water, there was just a grey mass in front of me, like a darky dark mass in front of me. And um, there was a lot of whitewash, and then it was gone. And look, the time time frame's a bit hazy here because like, I was in shock, so what felt like three minutes was probably ten seconds. But... um. All I remember is looking around, and next minute there was about a two metre blood cl- cloud around me, radius around me. And uh, my mate Nat, that was right beside me, just lunged. And at the stage, I was like patting down my chest, wondering where I was bitten, thinking that uh, a chunk of my chest or waist must have been hit. And then uh, I started to come out of shock a little bit, uh, enough to see that my mate Nat had a hold of my arm, trying to trying to um, stem the bleeding out of my arm.
0: Wow, wow. Well, now I. Right, I said to you. So what off air um, we were talking? I was asking you about that, and I saw pictures of you on the internet sitting there in hospital. And it just looked like you had a little, quite a small, small bandage um, around your arm. And I said, "Oh, you got bitten by a bull shark." It didn't look like much, just sort of a not much of an event, but it kind of was, mate. What what sort of damage did it do?
2: Um, yeah. So the. I was lucky enough to have a pretty good plastic surgeon do it all up, so it's just a pretty much now it just looks like a scar, a full ringed scar around my wrist and a little bit up, messy bit up into my hand. But um, it, at the time, yeah, it pretty much peeled my wrist like a banana. There was just two two bones sitting there, and uh, it took out uh, two nerves, most of the muscles and tendons, and an artery. Wow.
0: And and you because you and just to put that into perspective, you're at La Montree. So what are you?
2: or 40 mile 70k offshore yeah yeah Um, but luckily enough that we knew heron island wasn't too far away it was about an 18 minute trip to heron so yeah after after the after it hit me it was pretty much get me back to the boat as soon as possible so um which was another stroke of luck too because my mate dave who was actually in the boat he was actually drifting behind the boat and just seen some Spanish mackerel come through and he was just about to take a shot. But being boady he said, oh, I thought he better not. So he jumped back in the boat and he actually seen the whole thing unfold from the boat. So he was right on top of us within a couple of minutes. And uh, yeah, they tried to get me in the boat. That was probably one of the worst parts of the day was uh, Natty jumped in the boat to try and help Dave drag me in. And he's let go of my arm. My first reaction was to try and stem the bleeding. So I went to grab my arm and I've just grabbed a handful of bones. Oh. So that was, uh, oh. that was a bit of a bit of a yuck, stomach-churning feeling that I can still feel now. But um, luckily, yeah, we were, we were a pretty top dive team and we'd all done a fair bit of uh, – Natty had done a heap of life-saving and we'd all been pretty medically trained. So it was in the boat, feet up, uh, tourniquets. They started shoving rags and shirts into my arm and then tying shirts around those rags. And, uh, then Natty was just, Natty's sole job was there just squeezing my arm and Dave kicked it into gear and we started heading for, uh, Heron Island.
0: Wow. And, and what, you just got a helicopter from Heron to the mainland?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So we reached Heron Island and they, um, from, from there they took us into a little medical ward and tried to start, start shoving a few more gauze and that down on my arm to slow the bleeding. And they brought a full medical team out and done blood transfusions on the island because I'd uh, wow. lost too much blood to move. And then, um, yeah, luckily they, they got, got a few blood transfusions into me and then got me to Rockhampton to change from a helicopter to a plane and fly on to Brisbane from there.
0: Wow. Wow. That's a uh, very, very close call. Um, I'm, I'm glad I um, played it down to you on the phone. I feel a bit silly now. Um, <laughs> it's nothing, mate. He just got a little bite on the wrist. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh do we was there another tough situation? I mean you seem to seem No, no.
1: no we're gonna we're gonna move along. All right. all right. Let's all right. Let's just um let's let's briefly have a have a message from our sponsors. Are we still is that cold
0: um, saw cream company still one of the sponsors?
1: They definitely are. <laughs> so with 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 two blokes like you and me. i I'm, I'm I'm thinking about I'm thinking about getting KY Jelly on next. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> G'day, guys. If you're new to spearfishing,
0: I highly recommend listening to our episode Free diving for Spearfishing with Pete Ryder. Pete uh, is an entrepreneur and an excellent freedive instructor, and he has come up with two great courses, the 10-meter free dive and the 5-minute freediver. I've used the 5-minute freediver to increase my bottom time, found it incredibly useful for my trip to the Coral Sea, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. His other course, the 10-meter freediver, is a great resource for those just starting out that literally want to get to 10 meters, and this course will help you learn proper breathing technique and some of the safety aspects associated
1: with freediving. Use the code NoobSpiro to save 20% on all of Pete's courses. He's put together this deal just for listeners of the show. That's at howtofreedive.com. Use the code NoobSpiro. Hey, guys. The
0: Adreno Easter sale is on March 17 to April 15. It's absolutely massive. Savings are wide. Do yourself a favor, check it out online at spearfishing.com.au. And the best thing about it this year is you can use the Noobs Bureau code at checkout. So if you spend over 200 bucks, you save $20. Bargain. We all love savings, especially when they're savings on savings. So check it out. That's at spearfishing.com.au or in store at Adreno, Woolen Sydney and Melbourne.
1: Hey, can you break back into veterans vault brown yes what, what have you organized Ah, uh, well um
0: well why don't, why don't we ask john john let's uh where it's it's time for veterans vault and as always shrek and i well particularly me i'm very prepared mate what have uh, <coughs> we i you prepared for veterans vault yeah um i
2: found it pretty hard to think of what i was going to say for this <laughs> one but uh i um I uh, just wrote a few things down, pretty much on how to establish the bigger picture of the uh, ocean environment, and trying to. Oh, nice! Make a better diver nice. from a young age. Something that I, I definitely had to work pretty hard towards, but I think could definitely help a lot of younger people out there.
0: Yeah, this is a great awesome. one. I remember working on this. <clears throat> all right, so uh, all right, take it. Take us through that, John. How can we uh, become better at learning the ocean environment?
2: Yeah. So um. Pretty much what, what I've come to believe anyway over, over the years that I've been spearfishing for now anyway is just everything in the ocean happens in cycles. And uh, the quicker you can just discover all the different little parts and segments of these cycles, the quicker you'll get the bigger picture of where the fish are going to be and what time of the year and what, what you're looking for, really. Okay. okay. All right. A few different points that... Um, I pretty much wrote down that could probably help you get towards it, and I don't think anyone will ever fully understand the ocean, but something that's definitely going to help you uh, get a little bit more of an idea is uh, one: don't believe everything that you hear. Uh, try and try and try and take as much on board, but try and uh, prove it, prove it possible, and correct yourself before you uh, set it in concrete. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest, the biggest thing that's helped me over the years is uh, keeping a diary. Uh, a lot of people don't do it, but um, you'll be surprised on how many of the top Spiros actually keep diaries. People with awesome memories don't need to. It's all just stored up in the vault, but people like myself, I, I lose my keys and wallet daily, so
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I, I have to keep a diary. And uh, the type of things that uh, document in the diary, um, it's just, just everything you see every day you go out. It doesn't have to be super... Uh, super involved but just just uh, try and document as much as you can stuff from like start with the date that you've went out the tide the moon wind swells water temp uh location the species you've seen for the day anything unusual is always a good one but um if you if you can document every little thing each day that you've went out what you've shot and all the little aspects that most people will overlook uh you're going to start getting a a um a vault worth of Uh, information that you can go back on and by a piece by eventually cross-referencing all your information you're going to start to see similarities and that's pretty much where people start working out where fish are going to be or what conditions they should be looking for and what fish they should be hunting i think most people just do it uh without even knowing that
1: yeah nice awesome love it john great idea keep a dive log cool all right tip tip number three for understanding the ocean and and from the big picture point of view,
2: yeah, um, develop your own forecast methods. I think's a, a big one. A lot of people rely on other people, or um, or just just have a hack at at the ocean. But um, if you can spend a little bit more time reading the weather, make it part of the whole spearfishing experience. If you're um if you want to become a good spearfisherman, then part of it should be you being a pretty reliable source of reading the weather. So have a few websites uh, we've always had at least two to three different websites that we'll check depending on what country we're in or what um area we're in and we always just cross cross reference the three of them to give yourself the the best forecast possible and uh through through that you'll it'll eventually see patterns and be able to tell what the weather's doing without even checking these these top websites
1: it's it's funny because because a lot a lot of the, the, the services in Australia and I think in New Zealand's the same, they they base their forecasts off the same data, but they come to sort of different conclusions about, you know you know, what what's actually gonna happen. So some people say like, look at two reliable apps and split the difference. Well what's your what's your go to up there in Gladstone?
2: Yeah, so it's funny, um most most the um most all, all the websites in Australia come off come from BOM. Bureau of Meteorology, yep, yep. but Bomb for us in Gladstone here, anyway. I'm not sure if they've uh, I've been in Gladstone actually diving and living here for a while now, but for the bulk of my career, diving when I was here, um, Bomb actually always put five to ten knots extra on all their forecasts. Is that was our experience? Okay, so yeah, we used we we used to use. Um, What's it called here in Australia? Is it swell map or sea breeze? Sea breeze here in so Australia. Sea, breeze. sea breeze. Yep. So we used to use sea breeze, which was usually a more accurate one, but they were they were the ones that would sometimes be well off what it was going to be. Where bomb was usually pretty on the money, but they would forecast five to ten knots on top of what it was going to be. So usually we'd forecast between those two, and um, and then ourselves just read the weather and what it's been doing. And uh, try and make a decision from there, but you're not always going to be right. Sometimes you get caught out. Still,
0: yeah. Well, what I find interesting, I work with an old salt um, that was a commercial fisherman off uh, Melville uh, a long time ago, and when I I told him, you know, about sea breeze and I think willy weather, and he just looked at me shocked and he said, "Well, can't you read a weather map?" <laughs> and I was like, "I was like, yeah, well, that's a good point." He said, "He goes, he goes, we never had that." Shit, as he called it. He said we just always, you know, read a weather map, and uh, and he's pretty good at it too. So I, I don't know what more you can get out of these apps as opposed to actually reading, um, yeah, like the, the weather maps that are produced for us either. So yeah,
2: there's lots of info. Look, there's lots of info out there that can teach you to read, like the uh, uh, read the weather maps a bit better, all your lows and highs and the pressure and and yeah. all that sort of stuff. I'm not the best with it myself, really, but like a really good app if if anyone. Uh, hasn't heard of it is uh, Weather Watch. It's actually a New Zealand app but they offer everything. You can go on lifetime, daily updated sea surface temperature charts and everything for free.
0: Okay. Wow. What What was the name of that app? Weather Watch.
2: Weather Watch. Okay. They've got okay, some cool. pretty pretty detailed maps. They're definitely uh, probably my favorite app that I've seen in the in regards to weather.
1: I'll link that up in the show notes. Yeah, sure. So awesome. All right. Um. All right. What's our any next final tip? any any more tips?
2: Um. Yeah, I had one more. It was just just to learn to enjoy the whole process of discovering all the things to do with either reading the weather or or where the fish are, the marks and that. Don't worry about chasing other people's marks or spots or hassling people for it. They'll probably work long and hard for it themselves. If you can learn to enjoy finding it for yourself, you're going to enjoy this spearfishing experience a whole lot more. Yeah,
0: Yeah, good point. I've got a a question for you. Now, you mentioned uh, earlier, you know, you've got this diary – you, you look to, say, replicate conditions to chase certain fish. Um, you look at these patterns popping up. Can you give us an example of a fish in an area and what conditions, time of the year, or something that you've learnt? I mean, you don't have to give the whole thing away, but what's just a great example of a fish that you've studied now for a little while and you, you can see patterns um, when it, in this fish and, and being productive for, for hunting them? Yeah, for sure.
2: Yeah. Um... There's, um, I'd say, probably the most recent one that, that I've found. And um, I didn't actually get to document this one to to the point where, to prove it 100% right, that I'd been living in Wollongong for the last couple of months and I was chasing fish that I hadn't chased a lot of before, just like your, uh, your, your flathead and your brim and um, snapper and stuff like that. And yep. um, one spot I went to, I found on my, one of the days I, I went there, there was uh, a lot of flathead. Yep. And not I told a few people that not too many people were shooting flathead. They were surprised that I'd seen them. And uh, I actually wrote, wrote it the whole day down in my diary. And I went back and had a look at it and found out what time of the tide it was because I actually dove that spot once or twice after that and hadn't seen any. And it wasn't until I went back and had a look and realized that uh, it was a certain moon and the tide was on an outgoing tide. And then I had a look at the location where I'd seen them and realized that where I was was in an direct runoff from a creek at the turn of the low so they're obviously sitting there waiting for bait fish to be washed out of the creek and feed and yeah. um just to try and make myself give myself the best chance i went back to that spot on the exact same moon phase, and uh yeah that's uh, there they were perfect i've Take had a toe. similar
1: I've, I've had a similar experience with flathead on an outgoing and all the monsters came out They're some of the biggest flathead i've ever seen and it was at the mouth of a of a river mouth so that's interesting but i haven't seen it i've only seen it once and i didn't pay attention to the moon phase so that is very interesting cool yeah i like it yeah okay awesome all right let's wrap up uh, Veterans vault awesome great job uh next part of the show is the funniest moment. So, one of the funniest things you've experienced out spearfishing. Um, I don't know if you've spent many, much time with blokes like Turbo, but um, surely you've got a few funny stories there, John.
2: Yeah, mate. This one wasn't wasn't hard at all to come up with. The uh, the boys that I dive with are all, all pretty pretty good characters, and it's always having a good time ahead of uh product for the fish for the day. Usually, so there's been a fair few laughs. But um, yeah, the funniest the funniest one was actually just a day of unfortunate events. And looking back on it now, it's just, just a good laugh. Um, we, we were at 1770, and the Curtis Coast Spearfishing Club was running at the time, and they were doing a social day where everyone was going to head out to, I think it was Fitzroy, and uh, go for a spear. So uh, all the boats rocked up on the sandbar, and we, uh, we all did the briefing and headed on out. And then just as we got out the bar, the boat we were in, my mates, sixteen uh, R Haynes Hunter at the time. The motor uh, shut itself, and uh, <laughs> it would pretty much only do just on six knots. Uh, it was an old old Blue Band Merc, like should have been in a museum. This thing. And uh, <laughs> we we made the call. We just told everyone, got on the radio and said, "Look, everyone, go out, have a good day. We'll uh we'll set up the way in and all that sort of stuff for you guys when you by the time you skip back." And we decided just to head up the coast to to go and try and get a dive in. And uh, so it took us about an hour and a half to get up get up the coast to anywhere diveable with me sitting on the nose of the boat, trying to keep it on the plane if we could. <laughs> and uh, it, it was it was pretty wild too because every now and then we'd have the motor in full tilt just to get that six knots. And every now and then for about 10 seconds it would just kick into full noise. <laughs> so uh, every now and then I'd be holding on for dear life. And it, it wasn't too bad. We got up to the spot and we actually ran into a pretty famous person in the sport and had a pretty – uh, a bit of an argument up there, which just added to the day. And um,
0: <laughs> oh, is any? Can you give us any hints?
2: No, nah, I don't. I don't want. To, don't want to talk out of school. But uh, it, was, uh, <laughs> no, no, it was a decent. It was a heated exchange of words between myself and him about how we, uh, how the etiquette of spearfishing works, and um, <laughs> we ended up. It, um, they come about because we were diving the same spot. And the reason we dove, chose to dive this same spot is because everywhere else was dirty and we had a broken boat. So we didn't think anyone would mind if we if we shared a location that was big enough for at least three boats to dive. But, um, yeah, there was problems over that. So we ended up getting out of the water after the boys went in for a dive. I didn't even get in. And we, we headed back to shore. And what, what unraveled on the way back is we're in the same situation. We're sitting on the nose of the boat. Oh, sorry. I was sitting on the nose of the boat. My mate was – uh was driving along, and uh, my best mate, Natty, has pointed out the side of the boat and said, oh, juvenile marlin, and a little juvie marlin, which has sunning itself near the entrance of 1770, and um, I've stood up to have a look at it and see where it was, and next minute the motor has just kicked into full noise, and I've just got flung backwards, put my arse straight through the windscreen of the boat, <laughs> and uh we- <laughs> <laughs> the noise across the bay with one of the boys falling over <laughs> in the back of the boat, one bloke hanging on, and me with my ass hanging through the, the windscreen of the boat. So, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Just looking back on it, it's something that we always laugh at. <laughs> <laughs> nothing
1: like, nothing like someone's ass through the windscreen. That's for sure. Yeah, that's a good, good way to finish up a dive day. All righty. Um, what are we moving on to? Funniest
0: moment? Oh, we're on to Spiro Q and A. This is. Um...
1: No, we're not. We're on to dive bag.
0: Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, it's not even on air. Are we still doing that?
1: We're always doing dive bags. Oh, you're a great anchor man. It's, so, it's not even head on, to on air. Head, head to toe, John. Um, excuse Turbo. What What's in your dive bag from head to toe? What equipment are you using on a normal day at spearfishing? And I, mean, I know you spear in a few different locations. So what's your... Um, What's your, your Gladstone kit look like?
2: Yeah, so uh, Gladstone kits are just a three-mil wetsuit. Um, I've got a few different types now. I'm, I'm using a polo sub at the moment, so um, I've really been enjoying them. They're like a smooth skin. Um, custom fit, have definitely, if you can afford the custom fit, they're definitely a great suit. Um, fins I'm using uh, are the New Zealand-made Roku fins at the moment. Um, they're just... I use them in New Zealand, I've enjoyed them. I'm actually looking at uh, converting over to some carbon soon though. Um, I wouldn't mind actually hitting up Ant Judge to, to make a set. His, uh, his knowledge and custom made fins that he's coming up are, I think are going to be pretty second to none, so um, I'll probably no. probably pursue that track. Um, all, right. all the guns I'm using is all uh, Aimright guns. I've got just about four various sizes, two small ones or one one meter or one point2 real gun. Uh, okay. 130 and my big 140. No, no roller guns. No, I've experimented with rollers, um, just as like the single rollers, and um, yeah, I, I didn't mind them. But I can shoot accurately with the traditional guns, and I seem to have less problems with them. So I, I wasn't going to reinvent the wheel. That said, I will. I wouldn't mind. I haven't tried the new big double rollers for large shafts. Yeah. If I can get a, a double roller aim right gun to throw an 8mm shaft um, at pace and accurate, then, yeah, for sure, I'd switch over to that. Just so you can get rid of the recoil? Just so I can get rid of the recoil for the bigger guns, yeah, for sure. Um, and then, yeah, apart from that, I've got a, a Santo D4F. That's probably one of my handiest pieces of kit. Um, Low-volume mask. I use the Micro Masks by Aqualung they're um, a bit of a finicky mask but they seem to fit me so um silicon weight belt is probably a big recommendation the weight belt i've got now is the first one i ever owned and it's still going strong and then um a silicon weight belt i've been hmm. using the one i've got at the moment it's an Omer one i think but um i can't really tell what brand it is anymore i've had it since day dot um and it's still okay. it still looks just as good so yeah good silicon belt yeah, is always nice. good compared to the rubber ones um, yeah, apart from that, I always carry a light rigging kit and uh, a bit of wasabi and soy in the bag. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's fine. It is sashimi, but a sashimi on the go. Yep. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, now we're headed to Turbo's. definite. Uh, his, his. This is his my favorite, favorite section. I show. couldn't wait to get to it. He never asks these questions, right? So I'll just I'll ask them on his behalf. Um, what What is the single best piece of advice you've ever been given for spearfishing, John?
2: Uh, the single best piece of advice is uh, dive with as many people as you can, learn what you can from them, and then pick and choose all the all the stuff that you enjoy and that works for you just to make your own hybrid style and that'll make you a, the best diver you can be. That's probably one of the early pieces of advice that were given to me and I've always went by. Yeah,
1: nice. All right, Who who has been the most influential person or people in your spearfishing?
2: Oh, my best mate, Davey Jensen, probably. He was already... Such a good Spearo when we first met. The age of like fifteen, so I was always in competition with him. And uh, yeah, would definitely, it'd definitely be because of him that I advanced so quick in my earlier days.
1: All right. Um, during your eleven years, I believe spearfishing, what is the single biggest lesson you've learned?
2: Um, make sure you're first aid trained. It's uh, it's definitely saved lives between our whole crew of us all being first aid trained. It's a good one.
1: Hmm. You gave a couple of cracker stories that sort of really highlight that. Um, if you could describe the, what the spearfishing experience means to you in one sentence, what would that sentence be?
2: Uh, to for me, it's probably uh, it's just as just as much a part of everyday life these days. Like um, it's a method of collecting food for the week's meals, the social experience, and uh, a place to clear the head. Yeah,
1: nice, and I. I was going to ask you who is the best person to go spearfishing with and why, but you're going to say my girlfriend because she's wonderful. Is that
2: right? I was going to say my girlfriend, but not that she isn't wonderful. It probably wouldn't be the reason why I like to spearfish with her. <laughs> oh, <God>. um, <laughs> she definitely is. But uh, the reason I love spearfishing with her is she just reminds me so much of myself, really. like She's just so passionate about the sport. Um, like for example the last last trip we went on we spent a week on northwest island camping and all she wanted to do was shoot a cobia and uh, on our very last day I, I took her out to a spot where we knew there was some rays congregating and we actually found a cobia on the sand lying. and uh she she got a chance to approach it and went down the cobia's lifted up off the bottom and she's went to take the shot and it just unfortunately it was a missed shot and um after that, it was just the most, just a cranky march back to shore. <laughs> <laughs> so I was in the background just in tears, rolling in the water the whole way back. So we've all had that experience. And it's, uh, it's just hilarious for people who, who are looking back on the time that they've done it, on someone else that's just done it for the first time, I think. So I just love all those moments yeah. seeing stuff happen for the first time with her.
1: Yeah, hey, cool. That's awesome, man. And all right. The-
0: and while we're, while we're on the subject, a big thank you to your girlfriend actually, because uh, she was the one that said uh, we should get in touch with you and get you on the show. And so here we are. So yeah, a, a big thank you to your partner for uh, for organising that for us. Yep.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Just... Awesome. I'm gonna I'm gonna link your um, Instagram profile up in the show notes, John. Is there anything else you want people to come and have a look at? Yeah.
2: Um... If uh, I'd just like to give a shout out to um, all the men and women of all the air rescue services, like the Central Queensland RACQ Helicopter, and Westpac Helicopter Rescue, RACQ Life Flight Rescue Services, all those guys. Um, they yeah. they they mostly run on donations and funding from uh, other sources. They're not. I don't think any of them. I could be wrong here, but I don't think any of them are really government funded. So. Um, yeah, any support that can be shown in their direction. They've saved my life, and you've, most people probably will know someone else or a mate that has been saved by them, so they, they don't get enough credit, those guys. Awesome. I'll try and link
1: a few of them up in the show notes as well so people can come and have a look and uh, and support them. So that, that's pretty awesome, John. Cool. Wicked. Um Really, really appreciated getting you on the show. I've wanted to hear the story behind those two fish for a long, long time. And so it was an absolute pleasure chatting with you today.
2: Yeah, not a problem. It's been good to have a chat with you guys. Always good. Cool.
1: All right, John. We'll cool. catch you later, buddy. Thanks, John. Catch gotcha. you.
0: If, like me, you have a friend like Shrek who comes over often and often misses the toilet bowl when he's having a leak, get yourself a copy of Spearing Magazine. Not only is it a great read with full glossy photos, it also is a good way to soak up all that wayward spray. So get your copy of spearingmagazine.com. Spearing Magazine from spearingmagazine.com. Okay, that is today's episode with John Pengelly. big thank you to John for coming on the show. A big thanks to Shrek for making it happen. And a big thank you to you for listening. All right, now our Kickstarter campaign is coming up for 99 Tips to Get Better at Spearfishing. If you'd like to support that, and help us out with that project, you can do so. Our Facebook page will have all the details pinned at the top, or you can just Google 99 Tips to Get Better at Spearfishing Kickstarter and it will come up for you in there. That's kicking off on the 10th of March. Check it out, it's an awesome book. It will help your spearfishing, guaranteed. righty, that's it from me. That's it from us for another fortnight. I have no idea who's up next. So it could be anybody. You could possibly get a phone call from me one afternoon and you have to talk to me about spearfishing for 45 minutes to an hour. So just be prepared. But seriously, I've got to get pull my finger out and do some work, but I'll make sure that happens. The Noob Spiro podcast isn't going anywhere just yet. Alrighty, guys, have a great fortnight. I hope you get out and shoot some fish. hope you get some nice clear water and calm seas. Until then, don't dive alone and stay safe. Guys, winter is coming. So if you've got holes in your socks, a rip in your wetsuit, do yourself a favour and check out the Adreno Easter Sale. March 17 to April 15, savings across the store. And the best thing about it, you probably already heard it, but you can use the Noob Spiro code at checkout. That's Noob Spiro. Put in the little code box at checkout when you're shopping online. You can shop online with Adreno at spearfishing.com.au. Check it out now.